Our history as humans is not a simple one. Sometimes the depravity of our ancestors is hard to face. It can be difficult to fathom that people are capable of committing such heinous acts against fellow humans. We may find it amusing to hear about the things people believed in or feared in the past, such as mythology, but at the time, those beliefs were just as valid to them as our beliefs are to us today. It is incredibly important to dive into our history, recall the things that make us uncomfortable, things we'd never do today. I think it's important because we are where we are today, for better or for worse, because of the decisions made by those before us. Welcome back to the Rainy Book Nook podcast. I'm your host, Shelby, and I'm here to bring you this week's dose of all things morbid, peculiar, and curious. This is my second time recording this. I tried to record it before I went to go see um, Ghost in concert last weekend, which was awesome. But anyways, I tried to record it before I left, and I used a different mic, and I did do a few audio tests before I recorded, but... I guess I didn't do enough because when I played it back, it was absolutely horrible and I was rushing last minute, like I did not have time to re-record it um, before I left, which was a bummer because the episode was already late, so <laughs> very sorry about that, but you know, just it it is what it is, it happened the way that it did and we're here now and... I mean, I when I said I was going back to weekly episodes at the start of the summer, I kind of predicted that I would have, I mean, I didn't want to predict that I would have an issue because you shouldn't think that about yourself, you know, you should shoot for success, and I definitely did, but the summer has also probably been like the most active summer of my life, and definitely in a good way, so I'm grateful for that, but as a result, I realize I should have not maybe gone back to weekly episodes because it I don't think it has been consecutive maybe the entire time so maybe I did it for like a couple weeks but I'm just looking forward to fall time because I mean I love fall but also because I'll have much more free time you know I won't feel like I need to be outside all the time our summers here I live in Alaska and our summers here are obviously pretty short compared to how long it is cold and how long our winters are. So we have, like a lot of people, I think everybody has this kind of urge in summer, but I sometimes feel like here it's very extreme. But anytime it's nice outside during during the summer, you feel like you have to be outside because you know that 40 below is coming in later in the year or snow or it's just going to be cold and dark for like six months. So if you don't get out every chance you get, it's a winter full of regret, and winter is long. So, like I said, though, I am looking forward to fall time because I feel like I had a really good summer. I feel good about it, but I am looking forward to having more free time and really, I, I personally feel like I can tell the quality of the episodes has decreased a little bit just because I haven't, um, I haven't 
been able to put as much time as I want to, or rather, I guess I haven't been prioritizing as much time as I used to during uh, when it was cold outside and I had a lot more time inside on my computer. <laughs> Anyways, I feel good about things and I feel good about the progression of things. It's just going to keep getting better. That said, let's turn our attention to Europe in the 1800s. Egyptomania was an obsession with Egypt that captivated millions of people during the 18th and 19th centuries. It seems to have been most prevalent in Europe, but quite a few areas of the world saw a renewed interest in the discovery and study of ancient Egyptian history and artifacts. In 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Egypt with soldiers and scientists. Many historians believe that this event was like the main catalyst for that worldwide, but mostly in Europe, <laughs> Egyptomania. Just a little while later in 1822, with Egyptomania in full swing, Jean-Francois Champollion deciphered ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, proving them to be an actual language. See, previously, hieroglyphs had been speculated to be nothing more than mystical symbols. With this breakthrough, interest in finding as many artifacts to process and decipher was the main objective at the front of archaeological pursuit during this time, both for genuine educational purposes by scientists and historians and for morbid curiosity by average citizens. Even towards the end of the 1800s and into the early 1900s, new spikes in Egyptomania would hit the world. Uh, one event responsible for a spike, for example, was the Suez Canal opening in 1869. The 1870s and 1880s saw the installation of obelisks in London and New York. An obelisk is a tall, four-sided pillar with a square or rectangular base and a pyramidal top. The Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., the Wellington Monument in Dublin, Ireland, and the National Monument in Jakarta, Indonesia are all examples of modern obelisks. Obelisks in ancient Egypt were symbolic of the Benben, the primordial mound on which the god Atum stood at the creation of the world. Ancient Egyptians referred to obelisks as tekenu, which means to pierce or to pierce the sky. In ancient Greece, these structures were called obelisks, which is the Greek word for spit, as in a long, pointed piece of wood used for cooking. By the mid-1900s, the craze for Egypt had largely died down, and people's attention had shifted to other things going on in the world. There are a number of reports of genuine archaeological findings during the time that Egyptomania had millions of Europeans in its grip. However, there are also many accounts of the macabre activities that people without any educational background engaged in, which is a darker side of the story. The ancient Egyptian mummy became a highly sought-after discovery, being packed full of history. Due to the process of mummification, specimens of ancient people were still, for the most part, intact if they had been wrapped well before burial. Because of this, tons of people traveled to Egypt to discover one and bring it back home. Thousands of mummies were brought back to Europe and other parts of the world, and people would flock to take part in something called a mummy unwrapping party. 
Giovanni Belzoni, a man with an extremely colorful list of accomplishments and adventures in his life, including being a strong man in his younger years to make money, later went on to play a substantial role in the discovery of Egyptian history and artifacts. To demystify that statement a little bit, though, he wasn't an archaeologist or Egyptologist and pretty much just went to Egypt and looted a bunch of mummies and ancient artifacts. That's what a lot of these people were doing. Belzoni was invited to Egypt by Muhammad Ali, the Pasha of Egypt, to show him his models of hydraulic engines. While there, he became fascinated with Egypt and decided to dedicate his life to discovering its ancient history and treasures. He was subsequently hired by the British consul to search for and retrieve Egyptian artifacts and mummies, which ultimately began his career in the field. He is also credited with discovering the tomb of Pharaoh Seti... I? I just feel like I said that wrong. <laughs> In 1821, Belzoni performed a mummy unwrapping at an Egypt exhibition near London's Piccadilly Circus, which attracted over 2,000 people. That is a lot of people. The event was so well received that Belzoni performed two more mummy unwrappings at other events that year. One of these events was attended by Thomas Pettigrew, who was inspired to popularize the practice. You pretty much can't find an article about mummy unwrapping without finding Pettigrew's name also in that article. Like he, He's very much credited with this becoming a popular thing. Pettigrew actually began selling tickets to events where he would unwrap a mummy and give a lecture to the audience. Attendees would often receive a piece of the mummy's bandages as a souvenir to take home. The events were mostly public, but people could also pay to have these parties held privately in their homes. Typically, these were very wealthy people. Things probably got weird in there. The awe of mummy unwrapping was partly due to the discoveries made during the process, but also due to people were obsessed with looking at other bodies back then. I, it, I know that sounds, it's hard to say that, right? But like in the 18 and, and probably into the 1900s as well, but I've heard of a lot of stories in the 1800s of people performing like surgeries on other cultures, other um, ethnicities and trying to find like the difference between them and us. And it's absolutely disgusting. And you can look into that a lot more if you'd like. Um, the American Sideshow series by Aaron Mankey, the guy that does lore and Cabinet of Curiosities, talks a lot about um, the way that um, African-American people were largely exploited and taken advantage of for the sake of a sideshow. And that is, I know I'm totally derailing here, but what I'm trying to get at is people were doing the same thing with these mummies. They were trying to look at them and see, you know, assess any physical abnormalities and what makes this different than me. And it's just kind of messed up. You know, it's hard to come at it from an understanding perspective because ultimately that is what a lot of people knew and, and or I should say it's what they didn't know. But when you look back on it, it's like, so fucked up, so sad. 
um, so much history was destroyed during the the time that people were doing this. Um, you know, at, when people unwrapped the mummies, they ogled the jewelry or other artifacts that they may have been buried with, and a lot of times just took those things. Like, a, a, I guarantee you there are jewelry boxes out there with, <laughs> you know, in some basement, in some building of, of this type of jewelry and stuff, and I'm sure a lot of it has been returned to museums over time, but I'm just saying, like, it got parceled out to such an extent that it, I'm sure for a long time to come, these souvenirs will be discovered. Um, A lot of valuable archaeological history was likely destroyed, you know, because people took apart corpses for fun under the guise of scholarship. It is not unusual for people to yearn for a bygone era, to wish they were born in a different decade, and to idealize certain aspects of that era. It's pretty common to idealize, like, the 1950s in America. You know, we often forget, though, the societal issues, living conditions, political turmoil, human rights violations, and so much more that existed during that time. For example, racial segregation of public facilities didn't end until 1964, so I personally would not want to return to that decade. But with all of the Hollywood films produced about like the 50s that showcase poodle skirts and leather jackets and ice cream, you know, I'm being stereotypical, but that's how the movies are, dancing and racing cars and shit, it's understandable how people get carried away with the nostalgia. The point I was attempting to make is that there are a lot of things that most people either don't know or have forgotten about the way society functioned in the past. For example, have you ever heard of a time in American history where it was illegal to be ugly? Wasn't a short amount of time ago either. Or, sorry, it wasn't a short amount of time that the law existed. It was for quite a long time, over a hundred years, in fact, in various areas of the United States. Let me clarify just a little bit, though, because this isn't about if you were hot or not. These laws targeted disabled people. This word meant something differently in this context and just differently in general back then. Um, It targeted, like I said, disabled people, people who were injured, people who were otherwise unsightly, according to the outline of the law. If found in violation, people were arrested and usually sent to an almshouse is what they called it, or a poorhouse. A, this is so sad, a former Union soldier named Martin Oates was arrested in 1867 in San Francisco, making it the first recorded instance of an arrest for being in violation of the ugly law. So what he was arrested for, Martin had become paralyzed, and he had become paralyzed while fighting in the war gets back home, gets arrested. I mean, it's not a shock. Literally since the like dawn of time, there are examples of disabled people, people that become maimed or injured at some point during their life being treated like absolute trash. And it's so disgusting because that really wasn't that long ago. One of the many reasons for this type of law was that as America industrialized, cities became 
flooded with people from all walks of life. Many of these people had only ever been around people of their own social status in small towns where everyone knew each other. The concept of so many social classes mixing together and having to work in the same spaces, live in the same spaces, shop in the same spaces, it led to a push from the elite to provide a structure of like what was acceptable and what was not. Because of these laws, people who were considered in violation weren't allowed to obtain normal everyday jobs since this would put them alongside the general public. So. I mentioned sideshows earlier, sideshows became one of the only ways that they could make an income, but sideshows were incredibly dehumanizing and in no way did these jobs afford them, not that I think really anybody had workplace protections in this time, but there was extra no workplace protections for these people or benefits and probably didn't pay very well if at all. In a sad twist of fate, these people who were not allowed to be seen in public sometimes became a sick fetish of quote-unquote able-bodied patrons who wanted to take a look at them in the setting of a sideshow performance. For hundreds of years, humanity has indulged in the pursuit of entertainment at the cost of people who elicited a ghastly reaction from the audience. We call them sideshows now, but common vernacular for these events in, in that time was actually freak shows, and they were called freaks. So, it's just very sad. Please listen to that sideshow series. It's, uh, I mean, I learned so many crazy things that I, I am sad isn't common knowledge. As time went on, more and more cities implemented ugly laws from coast to coast. Interestingly enough, though, New York and Los Angeles were unsuccessful in their attempts to establish ugly laws. I think just purely down to a vote, but I wasn't able to find anything that definitively stated why they failed to pass them in those cities. It is theorized in some spaces that these laws were in line with the eugenics movement, since there were discussions from policymakers about also implementing laws to prevent disabled people from being able to marry or have children. I mean, come on. After World War I, many veterans returned home with serious injuries that instantly put them in violation of these laws, like Martin Oates did way back when. Um, largely due to this, a shift occurred in the general public's perception of people with disabilities, and the ugly laws began to go out of style state to state. However, it wouldn't be until 1974 that the last case of an arrest for an ugly law violation happened, uh, and that was in Omaha, Nebraska. So... A police officer wanted to arrest a homeless man, and very clearly did not have an actual reason for it other than just he just wanted to be an asshole so he goes through the book finds out that law is still on the books and in effect and tried to stick it to that guy thankfully the prosecutors thought it was as ridiculous as i'm sure we all do um and it, it was thrown out he wasn't actually charged with it um i mean even at the time the law was extremely outdated and and like i said it sounds like the officer didn't actually have a reason to arrest him he just was like you're homeless i guess i don't know today there are more protections in place for disabled people at least in the u.s i can't speak for anywhere else but 
things like the Americans with Disabilities Act being passed in 1990, although that doesn't mean we're anywhere close to done. Um, it was just within the last 100 years that the discrimination and incarceration of disabled people was legal, written into law. That's why it's so important to learn our history and ensure we are always mar marching towards the improvement of everyone's quality of life and not away from it. Switching gears a little bit again, um, this is a, a story that I think some people probably know about. I, I had heard the phrase like radium girls before and I've seen that I haven't watched the movie but I know there's a movie about it but I will admit beyond that I really hadn't learned anything else so I decided since I was kind of learning about um shocking human history if you will this was a perfect thing to learn about Marie Curie is a name many are familiar with for her incredible footprint made on the scientific community. In 1898, Marie and her husband Pierre Curie discovered radium, a radioactive element. They found it in the form of radium chloride, which they extracted from uraninite. They removed uranium from their sample of uraninite and then discovered that the remaining matter contained an unknown factor. The next step in their investigation was to then separate the remaining matter, and at this time they discovered two new elements within, which they named polonium and radium. And we're going to be focusing on radium. Radium became very popular very quickly, leading to a widespread desire to include it in all sorts of things. Resorts and campgrounds with bodies of water began putting high levels of radium in those bodies of water, claiming it to give the water rejuvenating properties. Radium-infused products such as drinking water, toothpaste, cigarettes, beauty products began to appear all over the market, with radium as the main selling point. See, people mistakenly believed that radium had great health benefits. For some reason, somebody started... Um, started that rumor or whatever and it just took over and soon radium infiltrated the paint market in a deadly way a company called the u.s radium corporation invented undark a paint composed of radium salts and zinc sulfide as well as an adhesive agent when combined the radium interacts with the zinc in such a way that causes it to produce photons and this concoction produces a pale glowing paint it would be this invention that spiked the popularity of radium like nothing before so during world war one to backtrack in the radium story a little bit a problem was brought to light when soldiers found that they were unable to see their timepieces while in the trenches so up to this point in history uh, timepieces were worn as something designed to be placed in your pocket if you were a man um, women were the only people usually who were wearing wristwatches the only thing i can figure about that is men related wristwatches to jewelry and thus deemed it un not manly i don't know i i don't understand <laughs> um so the first response to this was to 
for watchmakers to design straps for the watches, like it was this newfangled thing, um, just so they could be worn on the wrist. So now they could access their watches a lot easier, but that didn't fix their entire problem. So now, now their next issue or an issue that they also had was, although they may be able to wear it on their wrist, the only way they were able to see their watch was if they went out of the trenches and risked being exposed to enemies. So that is where the US Radium Corporation comes in because after they've created this paint and started thinking about putting it on watch dials, the, they, the US Radium Corporation got a contract with the United States military and they started making watches for these soldiers with radium on the dials so that they could see their dials in the trenches without, like I said, having to go up. So this became not just something that service members wanted, everybody wanted a watch with a glowing dial. This is also, you know, the, during a time where people were largely in support of the military as well. So anything that the military was doing, a lot of people wanted to do. And if it was useful, they wanted it. So shortly after that, uh, like I said, even the average civilian wanted their watches to have this feature. Also during this era is a time where job ads would usually specify if they were seeking male or female applicants. Certain lines of work, like factory jobs, secretaries, etc., usually sought female employees. Between... Sorry, I just heard a child screaming. I'm sorry if you can hear that, and sorry, kid. Uh, between 1917 and 1926, the U.S. Radium Corporation employed approximately 70 women in their factories to paint the watch dials. These women were paid 1.5 cents per dial, which was a good wage for a woman at the time, evidently, as the average male salary in the United States at this time was between 37 and 47 cents per hour, depending on the industry, according to the Handbook of Labor Statistics written by the U.S. Department of Labor. And I, I want to say, obviously, because I said per dial and then per hour, I'm pretty sure the women were able to paint four watches per hour. I could be totally pulling that out of nowhere, but I'm, I'm certain, almost <laughs> certain that I read that. So that would be how that equates. Basically, even then, if you know, you know. Women who worked in the radium factories thought themselves fortunate though. You know, radium had taken the world by storm and was believed to have incredible health benefits. So they're like, dude, we're like plugged in, you know? Even though scientists at the time were already beginning to change their minds about radium and began to actually warn people about the potential risks, it would take a long time for the message to reach the general public. While the factory workers had not been told of the potential risks, it was later recalled that upper management and scientists employed by the U.S. Radium Corporation actually did take precautions when working with the substance, such as wearing masks, using um, lead screens, tongs, and other PPE. The Radium Girls, as they later became known, were instructed to dip the brush into the undark paint, Next, to place the bristles of the brush in between their lips to, like, bring them to as fine of a point as possible to ensure the details on the watch dial were precise. So, they're putting it in their mouths, you know? They really 
really didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Since nobody in the public arena had any knowledge of the potential risks of radium yet, except for, I guess, a few, whatever people were listening to these scientists, which probably weren't very many people, the women who worked at the factory began using the paint as a beauty enhancer. They would sometimes paint their nails with it, maybe even paint their teeth, apparently before a night out to attract somebody on the dance floor or something. Again, they, like I said, they put the brush in their mouths all day at work, so they had no reason to believe that it wasn't safe to use the paint like that. The girls hired to work in the factories were soon given the moniker Ghost Girls because people would observe them literally glowing after they left the factory due to the high concentration of radium dust in the air. Let's bring Marie Curie back into the picture for just a moment. Curie died of a rare blood disease called aplastic anemia. This condition occurs when your bone marrow cannot make enough new blood cells for your body to function properly. This blood disease is now believed to have been caused by her long-term exposure to various forms of radiation. During her health decline, she speculated that her work in the lab may have had something to do with her illness, but it was not investigated at the time. It actually wouldn't be until 1995 when her body was exhumed that the truth behind her death and just how radioactive her body was at the time of her burial became known. Curie was so radioactive that she was buried in a lead-lined coffin, despite it being stated that she was taking steps in the later part of her life to reduce her exposure to radiation, further hinting at her speculation about the negative effects of prolonged exposure. Marie Curie also didn't die until 1934, and of course at that point in time, radium had already made its way into the bodies of millions of people, and it would be a long time yet before the truth of the dangers behind this element would become widespread. Frances Spletstocker, one of the radium girls from Waterbury, Connecticut, went to her doctor in 1925, complaining of severe tooth and jaw pain as well as arthritic symptoms. Not long before that, she had developed anemia. Similar to what Marie Curie would die of just a decade later. Buckle up because it gets pretty graphic for a little bit here. When Frances's doctor attempted to remove the tooth that was suspected to be the source of her pain, part of this poor woman's jaw literally just fell off. Slowly but surely, her gums and cheek then rotted away, and within a month after that tooth pull, she died. Around that same time, a few other radium girls had died, and others were becoming sick, a lot of them sharing very similar symptoms. One girl, Amelia Magia, visited her doctor first with a toothache like Francis. She also had a tooth removed. While her jaw remained intact for the time being, it wouldn't be long before Amelia needed the tooth next to that tooth removed. When doctors inspected the space where the infected teeth had been, they discovered bleeding ulcers full of pus where her teeth had been. The issues in her gums did eventually cause the forced removal of her lower jaw, and after a series of health issues and no sign of improvement, Amelia died of a massive hemorrhage on September 12, 1922. However, despite all of that, her cause of death was listed as syphilis. 
Huh? The U.S. Radium Corporation purportedly paid people who were not doctors to assess the girls claiming to be falling ill and then telling them they were completely fine. Even worse than that, the company also paid off the girls' actual doctors and dentists to say that they were suffering from syphilis so that that could be listed as their cause of death in an effort to defame the character of these girls and sow a seed of doubt in the minds of the general public. If doctors refused to do this, they were met with legal fees, potentially, um, threats, and a lot of other stuff. The women's repeated tooth and bone diseases are likely due to the fact that radium, when absorbed by the body, is actually deposited in the teeth and bones because the body mistakes it as a substitute for calcium. Unfortunately for the body, instead of fortifying the teeth and bones like calcium does, radium attacks the bone tissues and kills them off. Despite the growing cases of women becoming ill and dying, Upper management vehemently denied that there was a correlation between the undark paint and the women's afflictions. It wouldn't be until the Radium Corporation started losing money after the public caught wind of this controversy that they would agree to let a study be done on the matter. It could no longer be ignored that all of these women were employed in the same industry, experienced pretty much the same health issues. I mean, it was just, you know, come on guys. You you're backed into a corner at this point. The first study was an independent study, and the conclusion was that there was absolutely a correlation between the paint and the women's injuries. They didn't want to accept this truth, though, so they paid for another study to be done. Lo and behold, that study's findings were the exact opposite of the first. And as a result, the U.S. Radium Corporation was able to turn around and convince the public that radium was safe, just like they thought it was. Although it isn't even that straightforward. Not that that was straightforward. That, I guess, was <laughs> dumb to say. The second study they paid for was done by... That one that I said was the opposite was done by industrial hygiene expert Cecil Drinker. So Cecil actually found that um, there was essentially no part of the factory he visited in Orange, New Jersey that was not coated in radium dust particles. It was everywhere, as well as there not being much or any protection in place for the workers. Another observation Drinker made was that nearly every part of the woman, women themselves glowed, including their undergarments. His study found the factory to be extremely unsafe and that continuous exposure to the radium dust was likely responsible for the women's injuries, including necrosis of the jaw. When Drinker presented his findings to the U.S. radium company, sorry, corporation president Arthur Roeder, Rotor refused to accept the truth. Though they would not present him with the proof, Rotor claimed Drinker's studies were false and that he had a report to refute those findings. When Drinker threatened to publish his findings anyway, he was met with a threat. The Radium Corporation planned to sue him if he did so. Their next move? Publish Drinker's report, altered in a way that made them look good. Once Drinker found out about his report being altered and published, he didn't care anymore. All bets were off. He did not care that the Radium Corporation had threatened him with a lawsuit, and he published his original report. I mean, at this point, it can be proven that he wrote a report as one way, they published it as another way with his name on it. Uh, 
there's really not much they can stick on him. It's, it's very clear that they did this. So after reading the report, New Jersey's labor commissioner ruled in favor of Drinker, and the company uh, he asked the company to implement the safety recommendations previously made by Drinker. Shortly after this ruling, the U.S. Radium Corporation shut down that factory that Drinker had visited. I am shocked that this didn't just mean, like, the end of the company for good, but luckily the, you know, there's definitely more to this story. The Radium Girls were not quite done going after the company to expose the truth. In 1927, a group of the remaining Radium Girls found an attorney willing to accept their case against the U.S. Radium Corporation. Though they did not go as far with the court case as they'd wanted, since many of them only had months to live, they did receive an out-of-court settlement, or they each received settlements. Luckily, while this didn't shut the corporation down or necessarily force them into change, it did blow the controversy up on a global scale. The story shocked people all over the world, and, you know, the the treatment of these women was just appalling, and now everybody knew about it. Again, in 1938, the company was sued by a dying worker named Catherine Wolfe, and her lawsuit was successful. The U.S. Radium Corporation stopped radium extraction and processing on site in their factories in 1926, but they stayed in business painting watch dials for quite some time after that. In the 1940s, they sold a property at High and Alden Streets, which I believe is in New Jersey. Since the 1980s, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has been investigating the properties, doing various tests, and formulating cleanup plans. You can actually find all of these cleaning plans on the EPA's website. Um, They installed radon mitigation systems and gamma radiation shielding in surrounding residential or commercial areas where elevated levels of radiation had been detected. As far as the sites themselves, in the 1990s, they began excavating radium-contaminated soil and vegetation for off-site disposal. The soil remedy plan started in the early 1990s, containing eight phases. Uh, That final phase was completed as recently as 2016, so it's something they put a lot of time into. They continue to monitor groundwater in the areas around the factories, but interestingly enough, so far they have seen no cause for concern or need for mitigation in the groundwater. Thank you for sitting with me here for a little while today. Um, I know it was a little dark at some points, but I think that's just how history is. It's dark. You know, we're not in a perfect state now by any means, and some places are definitely doing better than others. I mean, I try to be grateful for how good I have it because of how many of my brothers and sisters on earth are suffering every day. There is always room for improvement, and I think that's something that can inspire hope for all of us. It's easy to find a lot of bad things, but I'm sure there are plenty of good things as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, I'm looking forward to the episodes coming in the future. The winter time is kind of my time to shine. I am a major homebody, so... (laughs) I'm ready for it. 
I definitely am. And I, I am just really grateful for everyone that continues to listen. I have some people that are very, very kind to me, like my the people that I interact with on Instagram and stuff like that, and my friends and family who listen. And I really appreciate it because I do still plan to make this into something big. It's just harder to do that than I thought it was. Or, well, I mean, I knew it was, I'm not saying I thought it was going to be easy. I'm just saying I thought I would have myself in a better routine and a better rhythm by now. But, um, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> so thank you so much. And I will see you next time in the library that no one leaves. <laughs>